Well, good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Armchair Theologian. Um, some of you may be asking, uh, since we're doing this remotely and uh, there's no one in the building, then why was I wearing the mask? Well, I'll tell you why. It's mostly just as a reminder for those of you that um, plan on attending Sunday uh, services. Uh, we just want to remind you that when we get back together this, this Sunday coming up in a couple days, uh, that we are going to encourage everyone to wear a mask. Uh, we're not going to require it, but we are going to encourage it. And we're also going to ask you guys to sit as family groups and try to, you know, be distant. We have a lot of extra chairs. We have some extra space in sanctuary, and we want to make sure that uh, everybody is as safe as they want to be. Um, that being said, you know, we've talked about the hugging and the, the handshakes. Uh, we came very close to possibly having tragedy uh, about a month ago when uh, I got sick along with uh, about a third of the folks that, that attended that service. Uh, it was, it was kind of touch and go for, for me at least. I felt, uh, I, felt, I felt terrible. As I mentioned in a previous uh, time on camera, that it was, uh, it was a hard time for me. I felt like I was breathing through a, a damp cloth or, or maybe even trying to catch my breath underwater almost. And it was just really, it was really hard. I, could, I couldn't breathe well. I ended up going to the emergency room briefly and got a breathing treatment. Fortunately, that was successful and I was able to go back home. Uh, we're really fortunate that none of our, our at-risk members that did catch the, the COVID uh, was sick enough that it would have caused them to be hospitalized or die. Um, but we also want to make sure that we are as safe as we possibly can. So, that being said, we encourage you to come. We encourage you to bring your family. Uh, we have masks available for you if you don't have your own. And we just encourage you to wear them. You don't have to. We're not requiring it. Um, everybody that comes that's an adult has the ability to mitigate and evaluate their own levels of risk that they wish to be exposed to. But that being said, we are glad uh, to also live stream uh, the event. We'll have a recorded uh, virtual service that we'll be able to have for you guys as well. So whether you're worshiping at home or whether you're worshiping here, we look forward to uh, being there with you. Uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, Daniel chapter 9. It's a really interesting chapter. No, sorry. Daniel chapter 8. Excuse me. Um, very interesting chapter. Pretty straightforward. Um, but it is in that uh, prophetic vein. And I'm looking forward to uh, delving into it with you guys as we try to pick apart some of the relevant passages and allow us to uh, move forward. So this morning, this afternoon, morning, afternoon, evening, uh, today, uh, in our time together, we have a little bit of time, I wanted to uh, dive into a passage that is near and dear to my heart. Um, if you've ever heard me preach for any length of time, in any period of time, you know that Romans chapter 8 is, in my opinion, one of the single greatest chapters ever written by humans inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul, the writer of Romans, uh, did a phenomenal job. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is right in the middle of an amazing book, probably one of the best books that Paul wrote. It's the most involved, in-depth theological treaty on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But it's dense. There's a lot in it. And right in the very center of the, ch of the book is chapter 8. And chapter 8 is a phenomenal study. Um, and I would love to be able to spend, in fact, we might actually go back and look at some of the other um, passages, um, but it's so dense and it's so powerful um, that you really need to look at it in pieces. And I thought, um, we had talked about last summer uh, the inductive Bible study method. Uh, we th we've talked about how uh, we can use that inductive study method as a way to 
to really pick apart Scripture, uh, not in a bad way, but in a good way, so we can really drill down onto the essence of it. And so I thought we might revisit that inductive method um, on the final few verses in the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 through um, 39, but um, we're really going to be focusing basically 28 um, uh, verses 28 through uh, 39, but I, I wanted to have a whole thought. You know, I don't, we didn't want to cut Paul off or start in the middle of a thought, and his thought really begins in verse 26. Um, so that being said, there's there's several different methods in this. We've talked about this, but the inductive method is pretty basic. Um, there's basically three basic parts. Um, the first part is simply the introduction. It's the um, it's the observation phase. It's just the facts, ma'am. It's uh, give me the details, the the who, what, where, when, and why kind of deal. Um, it's at this point that we ask questions like, um, are the words repeated uh, during the passage? Any what words are repeated? Anything that we can put into a list, that's important. Um, we look at uh, words that may indicate a change of purpose or or a change of place or a change of venue or a change of an attitude or a topic. Um, we are looking for words that maybe contrast one word against another. We're not making any judgments. We're not reading into it. We're just sort of making a list. And when you do an inductive Bible study, you really need to have a pen and paper or a notepad or a tablet or something that you can uh, write yourself notes on because this is the kind of study that when the Bible says that we are to study to show ourselves approved, this is kind of what God is talking about. I'm not saying you have to use the inductive method. It's just one of the better methods out there for accomplishing the goal of studying to show ourselves as approved workmen unto God. And so that's the first phase is observation. Those are the things we're looking at. Um, it's very critical at this point not to add any suppositions, presuppositions, post-suppositions um, to the text. We are not trying to take anything away from it or add anything to it. We just want the facts. Who, what, when, where, why, how, and, and wherefore. Okay? The second stage is, is really the meat of, of the study. It's where we spend the bulk of our time. It's in the interpretation. We're asking ourselves, what does the passage mean? How is it interpreted in a way that um, uh, that we can draw from? Now, you may say, how is it interpreted? interpreted? We, can, we, can, we can pull that out when you say, well, um, a pastor I listened to that I respected you know, six months ago said this about this passage. But that's not really what interpretation means. You don't want to look at past sermons that you've heard on it, although that may be a starting point. What you really want to do is ask those basic questions. Like, for instance, what is... Um what is the cultural or historical context behind this passage? Many passages, especially in the Old Testament, weren't written to us um, in the sense that when it was written, uh, obviously God knew down through the time that there was going to be a time when we were launching rockets into space and, and he was writing it. But for a lot, of, a lot of times when he was writing it, he was writing it to the audience at the time that was reading this. If he was writing it to a space-age, uh, you know, plastic wearing society um, and not to the one that was that was right in front of him then he would have missed an opportunity to minister to the people right then and so we need to look at the historical and cultural context um, you need to ask yourself what else do I know about the author what do I know about what's happening in uh, in and around the passage you know what what is what's happening uh, in the verses ahead of it what happens in the verses afterward what's going on in 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 the author's life 
Like, for instance, when studying Jeremiah, you got to know he's a weeping prophet. you got to know why he was a weeping prophet. Um, these are questions you would have to ask. You get to know your author. Um, you may also ask yourself if there are other passages in Scripture that you're aware of that may help to interpret this passage. Um, a lot of times having a really good study Bible is helpful. Uh, most good study Bibles have margin notes where you can have a link where it says that this passage or this word or this phrase is used in another area in a similar vein. And don't be afraid to go over and look at those other passages. See what God is, is saying in both and see if it's comparable. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just a word use that is being referenced and, and it's helpful to know. Um, ask yourself if you've overlooked anything or maybe made some presuppositions or assumptions in the passage that may not uh, uh, may not be there. And then ask yourself, what's the clearest meaning of, of the Scripture? Those sometimes are the most important things you can do when looking at these passages. But there are some key things that you don't that you do and don't want to do. Um, these are some of the, the the challenges, I guess, that that can happen whenever you're in this information um, uh, interpretation. Inter interpretation phase. So we have some rules. First of all, is you don't twist the scripture in its meaning. Don't manipulate the text to get it to say something that you want it to say. Um, that's just not what you do. Um, you look for the simplest uh, interpretation. The, the principle there is Occam's razor. Sometimes the simplest answer is the right answer. Um, and go from that place. Don't, don't go back to that place after going elsewhere. Start there with the simplest explanation. Um, and believe what it's being said. I mean, if, if the passage says X, believe that it's saying X. Don't try to make it say Y or Z. Um, and then allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So a lot of times the key doctrines that we would be studying are, in, are contained in other places in the, in the Bible. So look back and find those areas. Um, avoid making important doctrinal decisions on obscure passages. Uh, that happens often. I see this often in ministry. And it's a way that you can go down to, you actually move towards idolism, um, idolatry, if you will, uh, and legalism, and, and some of the other isms, when you use and base your sole authority on, on a small, minor passage that may only be, be referenced once or twice in the entirety of Scripture. Um, it's a dangerous place to be. So try to connect uh, your, your, the passages that you're reading to the broader context of the, what we call the meta-narrative of Scripture. Look for that meta-narrative, that big story, the gospel message. How is the gospel message coming across here? And the final phase is the application phase. Like, how, how can I take the passage that I'm reading and apply it to me? Now, I'll be honest. There are some passages in the Old and New Testament that is really difficult to find an application in, in it for yourself. Like, for instance, some of the passages in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. I've studied it many times. I've preached it a few times in churches. Um, but the reality is, is that there are whole sections in the book of Acts that just talk about Paul traveling from one place to another. Um, there are whole chapters in the Old Testament that just deal with genealogies. Now, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a Bible nerd. And so when I see a genealogy, I don't groan. I dive in because there is some really cool stuff in those genealogies if you give it a chance for it to percolate. But the 
reality is, is that a lot of those genealogies, a lot of these travel logs, if you will, you know, Paul traveling from this city to this city, they may not have a direct impact in our lives. So instead of focusing on those, that's when you will read those passages in the context that it is, and then go beyond and read, because usually God has something to say after those travel logs, after the genealogies, and there's a point to the genealogies. And so, just in my, my opinion is, is if you're in a, if you're reading a passage that, that you don't think has an application to you, don't just throw your hands up and say, well, that's silly. No, keep reading. Because I guarantee you, if you just read a little bit further, God is going to reveal some passages to you that will give you an application. You see, we don't study the Bible to gain knowledge, and that's something I think is really important. If you want to gain knowledge, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can take classes, you can um, uh, you can you, you can get certifications. Uh, I was talking to a, a gentleman the other day that that was uh, um, wanting to fix some equipment in his house, and he said, "You know, I, I thought for a minute about actually going and getting certified because he found that he enjoyed doing it." Um, now he ended up not doing that, but I thought that was kind of interesting. That sometimes um, we do things because we're called to it, because we like it. Um, I'll never forget when my son Caleb was helping me do some some work on the car um, at the house. Uh, he crawled up under there. And if you know my son Caleb, you know he, he's just he's really skinny. Oh, he's not as skinny anymore after Marine boot camp. He put on about 30 pounds of muscle. But there was a time there where I have a picture of him where he crawled all the way up into the real well and was reaching his long, skin, thin arms up in there to, to, to do some work that, that I couldn't reach to save my soul. And... Um, and he just loved it. He said, Dad, I love working with my hands. And it, that was that was kind of what led him to go into the military, to find um, a job field that he could work with his hands and enjoy uh, serving others. So, um, you know, we need to remember that, that there are lots of things we do to gain knowledge and to gain experience and, and to gain expertise. But that's not why we study the Bible. We study the Bible to gain knowledge so that we can learn how to live our lives in accordance to the godly scriptures. We are not learning it just to learn knowledge. We are using it so we can apply it to our life. And so we have to go back to our questions in the beginning of who, what, when, where, how, and why. And then we need to apply those to ourselves. How does this apply to me? Who is in this that, that I can apply their lives and their principles to my life? What did they do and how can I apply that to my life? These are some of the basics that, that we um, do when we're studying a passage. So that being said, I'm just going to go ahead and read through uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to dive into the study um, and we're going to go as far as we can. And, and uh, I appreciate you guys attending uh, and, and being with me so far. So uh, follow along with me. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in the 26th verse, going down to the 39th. Likewise, Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as or what to pray for as we ought to. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is a phenomenal statement. Now, we're not going to focus on that particular passage. That's just a prelude 
to what God, what Paul wants to, to really emphasize. And we see that starting in verse 8 when the emphasis begins. He says, the Spirit's here. He's praying for you. He's groaning for you. He's inside you. He is, he is doing his job to interpret to God the things you don't even realize you need to pray for. That being said, Paul says, let's move to the meat. And that's where we find verse 28. Verse 28 says this, and we know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give up all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or the sword? This is his question. Verse 36. As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Pretty dark verse. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He continues in verse 37. He says this. He says, No, no, unequivocally no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any thing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a powerful, powerful passage. Um, I love that last part of that. You know, there's nothing that's going to separate us from the love of God. And so... We must begin our study. Now, we begin our study, like I had mentioned before, with the basic introduction, right? The basic introduction is observation. What does the text say? What are we really getting out of this? Who, what, when, where, why? So who? Who is the author? Well, that's obvious. It's Paul. Paul is the, is the, is the evangelist. I, I heard one, one theologian describe him as a, as a militant missionary apostle. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say militant, but I would not want to stand in front of Paul when he was on a mission from God. That man didn't let anything deter him. Not shipwreck, not stonings, not beatings, not anything. Everything that, that, that stood in the way between him and the goal that God had set for him was knocked down in the side. Not so much by Paul, but by God himself. So, why was the book written? What was the occasion for this book? Well, we know the book was written to those saints that were living in Rome. We know because we've read the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts we know that there was a lot of issues that were happening in Rome itself. Uh, there was a time when the Jews were, had been kicked out of the city of Rome because of an individual, according to the book of Acts, uh, there was a man, a cult, or a group that was followers of this fellow named Crestus, which most theologians believe 
that that was a um, that was a title um, that was used in the Latin uh, to refer to Christ. And so we feel like that the Jews were kicked out. All the Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem. Or, I mean Rome, um, and specifically it was the Christians that were targeted. Uh, they were at that time considered a sect of Judaism. And so we know there were some problems at the time that Paul wrote this. The Jews had been allowed to come back into uh, the. Uh, the city of Rome, and some of the non-Jewish Christians who had not been kicked out of the city had still stayed, and the church there had grown, but it had grown without that Jewish connection, and now the Jewish and the Gentile connection had to get reestablished, um, and so we we knew that we know that's that's sort of the, some of the background um, that's there. Um, Paul was writing this letter to the Roman church. Um, Paul, at this point in his ministry, was finishing up his, his ministry to the rest of, uh, of, of the area, to more of the eastern side of it. He had finished the Greek part, he finished the Asia Minor part, and he had turned his attention towards the west. Um, he was wanting to go to Spain, he was wanting to, to continue this missional movement across the whole of the Roman Empire. And so Paul was writing this letter in preparation for this. We, we know this because uh, Paul talks about this in uh, chapter 15 um, of the same book. He also talks about it in verses 2 as well as in, uh, in chapter 2 as well as in chapter 15 um, and the first chapter, if you will. Uh, there's also uh, this emphasis of the union between the Jew and the Gentile Christian believers. Um, Paul really wanted to draw in that connectiveness between the church as a whole. And it wasn't easy. I mean, unity among the churches is one of the hardest things that, that we'll ever obtain. And I, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen a church fully united, fully on the march, completely 100%. Um, it just hasn't happened. So, and we wax and wane percentage-wise. Sometimes we're, we're as, as unified as we can be. Other times we're a little more fractured than we should be. Uh, but in the end, we're still Christians. We still love Jesus. We still want to focus on the kingdom. And that's what that should be our unifying goal. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize that. Um, and so he does talk a little bit about this in, in chapter 11 uh, in the book of Romans. He talks about uh, the pride. Um, he also talks about some of the, the issues that were um, uh, among the Jewish believers, a little bit of uh, disillusionment or some frustrations that they were having. Um, he wanted to address that. So that's part of sort of the background there. What other historical events you know, um, that are happening around there? Remember we talked about who, why, what. So what was going on in the history? I've already shared a little bit about that, but you can't overstate or understate the political machinations of the day. Um, the, the, the world was becoming increasingly less tolerant of the Jewish faith. And when I say the Jewish faith, I'm talking about the Jewish sect of Christianity that the world was looking at. Because they couldn't differentiate between a, a Jewish Christian and, a, and a, just a Jewish individual. To them, it was the same. And so when they looked at this, they thought that Christianity was just a minor sect in uh, Judaism. But what they didn't realize was just the explosive power that the gospel gave to people that needed to hear that message. And so th all that is, you know, is sort of the background as we move forward. Um, there was there was things happening. The gospel was spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire wasn't ready to deal with that. So 
where, so we got, we got who, why, what, where. Where was this book written? Who were the original recipients? We know that Paul was um, uh, probably in Corinth at the time of writing this letter, um, and it's largely because of some of the discussions that he gave um, about the people that are with him in chapter 16. Uh, but we also are fairly certain, just in the in the book of Acts and the way the the way the, the narrative flows, that he was probably in Corinth at the time of this writing. So he was looking at going uh, uh, to Rome and being able to see them face to face. And it was written. Um, yeah, it was written probably in, in Corinth. Um, and for the most part, the, the saints there in, in Rome tended to be uh, doing well, and they weren't facing any serious persecution. So, context. We talked about some of the context questions. Uh, what is the overall message of this book? How does it apply to us? How does it fit with us? Um, and where does it fit into that meta-narrative, the, the entire gospel message? Um, this particular chapter is a powerful chapter, but it fits within a powerful book that talks about the profound and, and, and amazing nature of the gospel message, which is that Christ came to save the world of the sins that they had and restore humanity back to a place of position where they can face God, not as enemies, but as sons and daughters of the living God. That's the essence of, of this gospel um, uh, presentation. And so... Um, we see that, especially in this particular passage, starting in verse 31, that's pretty pretty evident. Um, so, what precedes the passage? What comes after this passage? Um, we don't have time this evening to talk about all of that, but you can't read chapter 8, uh, book of Romans, verse 26 through 39, and just walk away. you got to read the verses leading up to it. I mean, the first verse in chapter 8 says, Know ye therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This was a powerful statement. Read what that has to say. See how that fits within this, this context. Paul is sharing some very important things. We talked about uh, some of the things that we want to look at is some of the uh, structural passages. You know, how is this, how is the structure of, um, of what's being said um, in this passage? Now, I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, I like English enough. You know, I speak English marginally. But I've never been an English major. And when I taught English in, in, in elementary and high school, uh, I just never really was a big fan of diagramming sentences. Um, in fact, I did everything I could not to teach that subject because I just didn't, I just didn't agree with that. I thought it was silly. Um, and that wasn't until I got schooled myself by a very intelligent homeschool mom who said, you know, you need to know how a sentence is created and the structure of it so that you can build your own sentences later. The problem I had is that I create and write intuitively without uh, worrying so much about structure. My mind just automatically fills in those structures. Couldn't tell you what a gerund is. I don't really care about dangling participles. I've never been a big fan of a lot of those little tiny tweaks that we find in uh, the structure of language, but my mind naturally uh, goes in those areas. But not everybody does. And I think it's important sometimes to look at structure. So we talked about repeated words. One of the things that we see in this passage is the word God is repeated about, about five or six times. Um, like in verse 28, 31, verse 33, 34, 39. Um, we see that, that, that Christ or the Son of God is, is repeated at least five or six times. Um, we see the word love 
is repeated multiple times, starting in verse 28 and ending in verse 39, where it says that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, another one that's repeated, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, separate is mentioned a couple times. And that's an important word, because we want to know what can cause us to lose our salvation, so to speak. Can our salvation be lost? These are great and powerful questions. The word predestined is mentioned twice. That's a pretty powerful word. And entire denominations have been formed around that concept of predestination. What does it mean here? The word justify is mentioned a couple times. There are some other repeated words, but these are some of the ones that you can, can look for. What are some of the phrases that are being used that God is repeating or talking about? The love of God is repeated quite a bit in this passage. Um, we talked about God having decisive action, moving forward in a purpose. We again we talk about that predestined concept. Remember, God purposely predestined. He called, he justified, he glorified, he gave his son. He loves us. Um, these are powerful uh, declarative statements that, that is being found in, these, in this passage. Um, does Paul make any comparisons or draw any conclusions in his in this statement, um, in his in his in this passage that we're reading? Um, there's obviously comparisons and contrasts. In fact, one of the comparisons and contrasts talks about suffering and how the sufferings that we have in this age will not compare to the life that we're going to have to come. So the idea that suffering is endemic and and part of the Christian walk is all part of this discussion. Um, and so that's definitely a powerful and important concept. Um, we talk about life being full of tribulation and distress. You know, uh, look what it says when it says in verse 34, who will condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, who was raised? Um, who is at the right hand of the Father? Um, but just before that, he's talking about that condemnation. We know that God doesn't condemn us. He is seeking to elevate us. Now, that being said, if we choose to walk away from God or not accept the free gift, then condemnation's on our own head. You know, uh, people, uh, I heard one man say to me once when I was witnessing to him years and years and years and years ago, um, and he said that he couldn't imagine a God that would send his grandfather to hell. And I was young in the faith, and, and young in my career as far as uh, being able to witness in an effective way, I think it was like uh, 19 or 20, and I wasn't able to answer that right. Uh, the true answer is this, is God has never sent anyone to hell. We send ourselves. We choose whether we want to follow Jesus or not. And in that choice, we make the decision. The pathway has been paved. He's sent his son. He's done everything he needs to do. It's now up to us to reach out. And I know some of my brethren that are more Calvinistic in nature will, will say, well, that's a, that's a work. You know, we have to work for our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to work to receive a free gift. And I know we can get into some of those hairs and we can, we can probably split that. But in the end of the day, when it comes down to it, I know that God loves me. And I know that he has saved me by his power. And I know that there was a point in my life where I was not saved. And there was a point in my life where I specifically had to bow my head and my will before my God and say, not my will, but yours be done. And when I did that, I know beyond a shadow of doubt that the Holy Spirit flooded into my being, that Jesus washed me free of my sins, past, present, and future, and put me in front of God and said, this is your Father. And then to God he said, God, this is your son. 
And I, to this day, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I stand justified before my God. Regardless of the sin nature I have, I know that my God loves me. Because while I was a yet sinner, Christ died for me. And that's the passage I, I ling, linger to. So, I know I sort of got off topic, and I apologize about that. Um, so, what are some of the other comparisons that are being made? Um, my favorite part is right at the end, where it says, the comparisons, it says that we are more than conquerors. He says that I am convinced that neither death nor life, the contrast, death and life, nor angels or no rulers, angels of, um, uh, that, are, that are angelic and, and in the spiritual realm, rulers that are in the physical realm, so you have that comparison contrast, nor things right now, nor things to come, not powers or principalities, no height, no depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are all comparison contrast statements. He's trying to give us that, that entire you know, scale. There's nothing from the beginning to the end that's going to separate us from that love that once we've embraced God and God has embraced us, we are there. We're in the family. We're all, we're all in. And so that's, that's the conclusion that he comes to. Um, does the author raise any questions? And in those questions, does he provide the answers? You know, he does. He says, what shall we say in verse 31? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He asks the question, and he gives us a rhetorical answer in the form of a question. Um, will God give us all he has promised us? Yeah, he will. And Paul says that. Who can actually bring charge against the elect of God? Now, you say, well, where does that come from? Well, we know the Bible says that the accuser of the brethren is the enemy, is Satan. We know that. We know by reading the book of Job in the Old Testament, as well as several other passages in the Old Testament and the New. I mean, read the life of David. That man had, a, he had, he had major issues in his life. No doubt about it. He was up, he was down. There was at one point his own son sought to, sought to kill him and take the throne from him by force, right? Um, David had lots of issues. But at the end of his life, when it was all said and done, he was about ready to go and meet his maker, if you will, to meet his God face to face. The Bible says that, he says that David was a man after my own heart. That's what God says about David. He says, I have one thing, one thing against my servant David. And that's the depth of Uriah the Hittite. You know, obviously there is the issue of adultery. There is the issue of, um, of, of the relationship he had with Bathsheba. There was a lot of other things that David did. He was known as a warrior. He was a man of blood. There's a lot of things that David could have done wrong. But when God looked at the totality of David's life, because David was so willing to repent of his sins... There was one thing the Bible says. He says, one thing I have against my servant. And that's the death of Uriah the Hittite. So when, you, when you're looking at these, these, these questions, when you ask us, who is, who is bringing charge against, who can actually condemn the chosen elect of God? That's you and me. That's the Christians that have fallen on our faces and said, God, your will, not mine, be done. For, allow me to be your servant. I am your slave. Use me. Take me. Move me. Speak through me. Speak with me. Fight with me. Fight for me. Fight ahead of me. Fight behind me. Hold me close. Love me. These are the 
things that we have said, the reality is, is that no human being can bring condemnation to us. David himself in the Psalms said, I'm pulling in a lot of scripture here that I'm doing from my memory because I've spent years studying this stuff. But you may not have that. So it's important for you to go ahead and look back and find these passages. But David himself said, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Um, that's a powerful statement when you think about it because we've all sinned against our brothers and sisters. We all make mistakes. But in the end, our sin, our sin is, 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 is accountable to God and God alone. The sin that we make towards other people is just a symptom of the sin that we have to, in between us and God. So, that being said, uh, we move on. So, um, some of the other questions that are, that are being asked is, is, again, who will separate us from the love of God? Of course, we have those answers. We know nothing will separate us. We know no one can condemn us. We know that no one can bring charge against us. We know that God will always deliver us. These are the answers that the author is bringing to his own questions. Does the author point to any, um, any relationships, like a causal relationships, like um, this makes this happen? You know, uh, some of them are pointed out there. God gave us his son. Therefore, we may know that God will give us all that he has promised. God has justified his own, his people, our people. Therefore, no one can lay guilt to, uh, at him. I was uh, on uh, Facebook the other day, don't judge me, and I happened to know one of the, I happened to see one of those little memes or whatever that was floating through, and, and it just simply said, um, somebody uh, accused me of, of, of sin that I had done, and Jesus answered out and said, uh, that sin is forgiven or the charges are taken away or something along those lines. Um, uh, don't get frustrated if I misquoted it. Um, but it's, it's that case. You know, God has, has gone before us. He has judged us. And he has um, looked at us in light of the justification of Jesus in us, through us, and, and on us. Not so much our sin nature that we have. Um, so those are some of the things that, that are out there that, are, that the, the author is talking about. And we come to some of the other areas. And one of the areas I think is really important, and I, I like to do this when I'm reading larger passages of Scripture, I try to look at, um, I guess the best phrase is what I call pivot passages or, or hinge verses. It's those verses or those passages that the whole text seems to rotate around. It's like a fixed point and then it just sort of moves in tandem. And you can see the shifting and the turning of it, right? Um, and so we would ask ourselves, is there a pivotal passage in here? Um, and I think that there is. Um, I think the, 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 the passage really begins near the end where it talks about that declarative statement or the concept of what God is doing in our lives, right? And about our, our, our end, where we're going to end up. Um, the promise that God is going to bring us into his kingdom. Um, we find that in verse 37 where he says no. When he's answering his question, he says no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. That's sort of that pivot point. He is now shifting his focus. He's like, all these things in the past, who can condemn us? And, and then he has that passage that he pulls out for the sake, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he goes on, he answers the question, we are, no, in all things we are more than conquerors for, for, uh, for the, uh, through him uh, who loved us. That's a, that's a powerful and declarative statement that God is making. That's sort of that pivot point, And that sort of gives them that launch off for that final part of this chapter and then stepping into chapter 9 in such a powerful and determined way. Some of the other things, those of you that are, are English people, 
Um, you might look at verbs. Uh, in Greek, verbs are so important because the verb actually tells you, like, is it an indicative verb? Is it a is it a, a, a declarative? Is it an interrogative? Is it um, uh, is it is it a statement that gives us a command? Right. Um, sometimes these verbs do that, and so it's important sometimes to look at the verbs. You know, what is what are the action words here? You know, God works in verse twenty eight. Um, it says God works according to His purpose. For we know all we know. Uh, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That God is working. That God is conforming us. That God is justifying us. That God will glorify us. This is his pathway of, of, of what we would call um, progressive sanctification. Um, we know that God gave us his son. He loved us. Christ died for us. Christ intercedes for us. These are all major parts of this particular passage. Um, and that, and I know there's probably a lot more we can go into this. Honestly, I'm, I'm just doing this rapid fire, right? Uh, because we have a limited time. You guys probably only have dedicated maybe an hour, 45 minutes to, to watching this particular video. And, and so you may not have time to really sit down and dive into this. But I encourage you, when you do have time, take some time. Take an hour. Take Take two. Take a couple days and parse it out. You can do 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Get your notepad. Find out where you're at. If you're like me, you get you get trapped in it, right? You start reading and you can't stop. You start studying and you can't let go. And so that's how I am when I'm when I'm in these in these moments. I start really just sort of digging in deep, and I'm like, I gotta know more. I can't stop. Um, but that being said, uh, we need to move on to the final stage because we're coming to the end of our time tonight. But it doesn't mean we've come to the end of this study. Just scratching the surface, right? So we need to ask ourselves, what, is, what does this mean? How do we apply this to our life? What's the application? Um, in general, what does the Bible teach as a whole on the subject that, that we're talking about here? That God is faithful. That God loves us. That God is, is moving towards us. And this comes into something that's really important. Now, I know we got some of our members in our congregation here that, and, and people that watch online that are that are um, scientists or you know, people that have spent some time in in college and you've studied some of the more, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, rhetoric and and how to debate. And you know that there is a law when when studying this stuff. It's called the law of non-contradiction. Literally, the law of non-contradiction says that A cannot be A and not A at the same time. So if I held an orange up here and I said to you, this is an orange, right here is better. This is a cell phone. I can't sit here and say this is a cell phone and then this is not a cell phone, right? It either is or it isn't. And so that law of non-contradiction tends to be where we jump at and we need to remind ourselves that. So this passage that we're reading is still part of the larger meta-narrative in Scripture. That means that no part of this scripture can contradict the meta-narrative of God's overriding love for his people. When the Bible says in the book of John, for God so loved the world, we know that verse, that he gave his only begotten son. We know in other passages in the New Testament where it says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. These are powerful passages. But we also know that those passages can't contradict any other part from Genesis to Revelation. All of it is a complete and total total whole. And so that's something that we need to remember when we're looking at this. There's always that meta-narrative um, flowing through. 
Um, so what does this passage teach us explicitly about salvation in God? Um, is this in harmony with the rest of Scripture? Yes, it is. Um, if somebody were a sinner and a not and not saved reading this, could they pull the gospel message from it? Yes, with the Holy Spirit's help? No doubt. Um, what does it not say? You know, what are we not mentioning in here? Um, some of the other questions that we're not dealt with here is, yes, obviously the love of God permeates us once we're saved, but, but what happens if you choose not to follow God? That's not mentioned. We know that. So we got to be careful how we see this and how we view it in light of the meta-narrative that's flowing through all of Scripture. Um, so is this passage clear? Is there a passage maybe in the New Testament that is more clear? Well, that's a question that, that you're going to have to answer. Um, you can look in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2. You can look in the book of Galatians, because many people believe that, that Galatians was like a proto uh, Proto-Romans, like a prototype for Romans. Uh, that Galatians is like the, the everyman's toolbox uh, in of, of salvation and, and Romans, whereas Romans is like the, um, the, the deluxe toolbox that has all the little tools and little tiny screwdrivers and everything you might possibly need, whereas uh, uh, Galatians is more of just the basics, like you get the small socket set, the small couple screwdrivers and a hammer, you know. We just have the basics, but Romans just sort of expounds and grows. And so you might want to look in, in, in Galatians. You might want to look at some of the other passages that your study Bible gives you to see if there are something more clear. Um, in the context of this material, can you see how the context can be have, have application to your, your daily walk with Christ? There's a lot of different observations you can bring. For me, I tend to um, pull towards the, the final part of this. You know, we are more than conquerors. Especially when I'm going through times of struggle and, and times of, of need, where I just want God to speak to me. Um, and so, oftentimes, I'll look at those and I'll think back on that. And I remember the first verses of chapter 8, and I remember the final verses in chapter 8, and I use them as a uh, as sort of to, to, to bolster my courage and to remind me whose child I really am. Um, and so we need to we need to remember that uh, as we go on to apply, uh, to apply this, we need to ask ourselves: When we read Scripture, you need to know something. You cannot read and study God's Word and not come away changed. You just can't. If you can open up God's Word and you can read a passage, especially one like this, and not be convicted, not be moved, not to be to to record, have questions asked of yourself. The first question you need to ask is, am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus as my Savior? Do I really have the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwelling within me? Because I'm telling you now, as, you, as I live and breathe, and, I'm, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, if you can read God's Word unmoved, you are not a Christian. Period. Period. Now, I'm not saying if you open up of, um, of you know, like, Genesis, where it's talking about the genealogies, and you say, well, that doesn't move me. I guess I'm not a Christian. Pastor Al said that. No, you misunderstand what I'm saying, and you need to clear, be clear. When you're reading a passage like this, that's powerful, that's moving, that's insightful, that's telling you things about yourself and God, and you can walk away unmoved and unquestioning everything that you are, then you need to question your salvation. Period. Period. Think about this. 
Every time we open up God's Word and we read a passage like this, we ask ourselves, how, can, how does this passage cause me to maybe change my view of God? Wait a minute, Pastor, did you say I need to change my view of God? Yeah, sometimes we do. Because sometimes the God we're worshiping is a God with a little G, not a big G. Sometimes we like to put God in a box. And sometimes we like to speak for God in areas that He's already spoken clearly and He doesn't agree with us. We need to ask ourselves every time we read Scripture, is my view of God smaller than He really is? Is it truly grander and bigger than I ever imagined? Should I change my view of myself? How am I, am I unworthy of God's love? Yes. Does He love me anyway? Yes. How does that work? How does this eternal nature of my salvation work with God? How do I change my view of myself? How do I change my view of this life? Can't count the number of times that I've talked to people about their marriages or, or, or their relationships with the people in the, in, in the world. And they'll say to me, you know, I just can't stand so-and-so. That person is a horrible person. I don't know why I ever agreed to marry them. I don't know why I ever hired them. I don't know why I ever spend any time with them. I don't know why I keep, I keep talking to them at work and why this person keeps coming to me. He's the worst person in the world. You know, the reality is this, is that every single relationship you have, everyone, the good ones and especially the bad ones, are there for a purpose. What is Scripture saying up here? That all things, all things work towards good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Every relationship you have is there to help you be conformed more to the image of Christ. Period. Period. Good, bad, or indifferent. Our purpose here in our relationships with individuals outside our home or inside our home is to conform us to the image of Christ and to make us more holy, not less. And it's how we respond to those relationships that tells you that. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we change our view of, of, of this life and how we view God? How do we change our hope? Well, we need to recognize that there are just some people that we, we may never really like, but we're going to spend eternity with them if they're truly saved. We need to remember that this home that we live in is temporary and we are going to step into glory one day and spend all of eternity without any of the problems that we have in this present age. Right now with all the political and social and economic upheavals, many of us are very frustrated. I mean, I've known people recently that have been dealing with, with major physical problems in their body. I've been talking with people in this community that are struggling. We've had four suicides in the last month in this community alone. And it's not even winter yet. It's just pre-winter. The deep dark hasn't hit yet. This is, this is real stuff, right? This is real people having real problems. And we have real hope to give them. Why are we holding our hope in our pocket? Why do we keep it in our private place? Why don't we bring that hope out to a world that needs it? Just something to think about. You know, I've said a lot. Our time is swiftly, swiftly pulling away from us. I know that in many ways I didn't parse out this verse. I just gave you some tools for you to do it yourself. 
And I know some people have asked numerous times in the past, you know, Pastor, you know, you're supposed to feed us, you're supposed to do this. You know, I've learned a long time ago that there is a time to feed and there's a time to teach how to feed yourself. And I think it's important that we look at this passage of Scripture and we look at some of the tools that I've given you today and ask yourself, who is ultimately responsible for your growth as a Christian? Is it somebody outside your life, outside your own body, in your own household, or is it somebody inside your body, inside your household? You know, I look at parents, and parents, you're the front line. Ultimately, it's your responsibility, not the teachers, not the pastors, not the Sunday school teachers. It's your job to teach your kids in the way that they should know. Men, women, husbands, wives, individuals, it's our job our job to seek the godly food that God has given us. We can lead you to water, we can give you the tools, we can give you everything you need, but until you truly drink from the well of living water, you'll never be satisfied. So, all that being said, I want to encourage you to continue to study the rest of this week, this final part of the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8. And some of that study may mean going back to the first part of chapter 8. It may mean moving into chapter 9. But don't leave this part until you feel like you've got a grip on it and you can really apply it to your life. And then move on. That being said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close in a word of prayer. And, uh, and I'm really grateful that you decided to tune in to this week's episode of the Armchair Theologian. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be able to be here um, in this place right in the middle of where you want us. Father, we know that with all the turmoil and, and struggle and strife that's happening in the world, in our community, Father, we know that you are powerful and you are mighty and that we know that ultimately you have a plan for all of us and it's going to work out for your benefit and your good because we are called to your purpose. Father, we ask that you will take this passage to heart and, and allow us to apply it to our daily life and allow us to look back on and reference it as often as we can for the remainder of this week and then beyond that we might take some of the principles of the inductive Bible study we've talked about numerous times and apply that to our daily study so that we might truly be able to show, to study, to show ourselves as approved workmen unto God. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask all these things now in the name of your Son and our precious, mighty, and powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Armchair Theologian.